We're glad you're watching this morning. You know, there's a question that I've been kind of mulling over for the last three weeks. What is God trying to teach us? What is God trying to show us? And I've had a number of different thoughts. One of the things that I thought about, I kind of mentioned in one of the emails that I've sent out to you, is maybe God is just trying to slow us down. You know, we're always just so busy, and maybe he's trying to get our attention that we need to slow down a little bit. One person answered me when I sent out that email about maybe God is trying to slow us down. They said, God's not just slowing us down, he is grinding us to a complete halt. But I'm not sure that's a bad thing. You look around in our communities and families are spending time together. They're playing board games together. They're doing recreation together. They're eating meals together. They're watching movies together. In my neighborhood, there's all kinds of people out walking all the time. We've got a dog at our house that loves to walk. And usually if that dog, we've got a nice big backyard, but occasionally he'll get to go for a walk and and he loves to walk. Well, Sean's taking him for walks now, and Haley's taking him for walks now, and Renee and I are taking him for walks now. Yesterday, we got out the leash, and he was like in the corner like, please, no more walks. But it's a good thing that we're slowing down a little bit, and we're realizing all those things that that we thought we had to do all the time, maybe they're not that important. And then there's something else that I think maybe God is teaching us. Could it be he's teaching us to be more appreciative, to be more thankful. And I know some of you are like, wait a minute, pastor. What are you talking about? My world has been turned upside down and you're telling me I'm supposed to be more thankful? Now, before you hit that remote control and go somewhere else, hear me out. I think if most of us were really being truthful with ourselves, we'd realize that there are a lot of things that maybe we took for granted and we weren't being appreciative of? I mean, just the opportunity to come to church every Sunday, seeing your school friends, sports, there's no sports anywhere on TV or anywhere else, being able, just the things like restaurants and going to malls, you know, going to get your hair cut. Eddie can't go and get any more tattoos right now because the tattoo parlors are closed. But just all the things that we kind of take for granted, we're not able to do right now. So I just want to kind of zero in a little bit this morning on just that kind of idea of gratitude and being appreciative. You know, if you think about it, whether you're a believer or not, Having that, being thankful, being appreciative of things is just kind of a foundational thing here in the South, especially the South, isn't it? Don't you agree with me? And I know, as we mentioned earlier, you're in your living room, but it's okay to interact a little bit this morning. Think about this. As soon as our kids get where they can talk a little bit, what is it we teach them to say? You can, you can answer in your living room there. Yeah, we teach them to say thank you, right? It's one of the first things that we teach our kids because it's so important. I have a two-year-old grandson that lives out west. His name is Deacon. And so occasionally when I'm FaceTiming uh, with his parents and him, he'll, he'll be up for some reason or another. They'll say, well, say thank you, Deacon. And he'll say, thank you. And that's what we're teaching our kids because it, it, it's important. In fact, you know, it's also important because what happens when they get a little bit older, 
older, you know, the tween years or maybe they're teen, teenagers and they're not very appreciative and you're walking around under your breath going, you little ungrateful heathen. I mean, we hate it when people aren't thankful. Any of you ever had a roommate, I mean, like besides your spouse that, I don't know how to say it, like they were just ungrateful and they were just lazy? I just took some of you to a dark place, didn't I? Yeah, I mean like you always bought the groceries and you always did all the dishes and you did the cleaning and they just ate the groceries and, and never lifted a finger to help out. Now some of you may be thinking, well, I don't remember that. That's because you were that roommate. You were the one. Or have you ever dated somebody that wasn't grateful No finger pointing. That's not cool in your living room to be finger pointing at people. But yeah, we don't like ungrateful people. Or how about have you ever experienced this? I I know this has happened to me sometimes, and I bet it's happened to some other guys. So you want to do something really nice for your wife, right? And so, like, I go to a lot of trouble, you know, preparing, put a lot of time into it. For that, for me, that means like an hour or something like that. And I just know that she's going to be really pleased. Like, she's going to come home, and and she's just going to gush. Oh, Dennis, this is so nice. You didn't have to do this. This is just so awesome. And, you know, I'm, like, so proud of myself, anticipating what's going to happen. And then she walks through the door, and she's just like, and I'm like, yeah, And she's looking around, and then finally she'll be like, oh, those flowers are cool. Like, they're cool? Like, you just took my heart out and threw it down and stomped on it? That's what you just did? That's all I get is those are cool? Or how about this? Because I bet every guy in here has had this happen. Really, there's not many people in this room, but there are a few guys in here. But, But I bet this has happened. Like, you come home, and like you walk in the door, And your wife has this look on her face. And you know that look because it tells you there's something I'm supposed to notice. There's something I'm supposed to be thankful for. And you're like, honey, you moved the, no, you didn't move the furniture. It's your hair. No, you didn't change your hair. The lamps are multiplying. I don't know. Just tell me what it is that I'm supposed to be thankful for. And that's the way a lot of us are. You know, we just forget to be thankful. Let me give you some facts about thankfulness. Do you know they tell us that physically it's really good for us? Like physically, it lowers your blood pressure. It takes away aches. It helps you to sleep better. Mentally, psychologists tell us that it literally boosts your happiness over time when you are thankful. Emotionally, it just decreases depression and anxiety when we practice a a, a grateful attitude. Socially, it tells us that when we're thankful, it betters our relationships. So we know that being thankful is literally a game changer in our lives. But did you know that spiritually being thankful is a game changer? There's something about gratitude that shapes your soul. So here's what I know this morning. I don't think anybody's going to fight me on this this thankfulness kind of idea. I think everybody would agree We need to be more grateful. We need to be more thankful. But here we are in the craziest time that most of us have ever seen in our lives. And so the question becomes, well, how 
do I do that? How can I be grateful when I'm not working or I'm wondering if in a couple weeks I won't be working? How can I be thankful when I have no idea when normal is coming back? How can I be thankful when I'm in that high-risk category for the coronavirus? How can I be thankful when I go to two or three different grocery stores and I can't get basic necessities like toilet paper and flour? How can I be thankful, Pastor? When I heard you speak two weeks ago, since then, my 401k has dropped about 30%. It's kind of hard to be thankful. But isn't that kind of how we normally are? Don't we often say, I would be thankful if? Because this is not just about what's going on around us as far as the coronavirus goes. This is a bigger thing about thankfulness. Because don't we always kind of have some ifs? Like if I didn't hate my job, I would be more thankful. You know, if my kids, I mean like if my kids just weren't demon possessed, I'd be more thankful. Like I, one of our moms, this was, you know, like two weeks now, parents have been kind of, everybody's kind of homeschooling their kids. And one of our moms, it was the second day of, of, of school being out and all the parents are homeschooling. And she posted this thing and I just loved it. It said, and just like that, spankings were back in school. And so sometimes if our kids would be better, I'd be, be so thankful. Man, if my dating life hadn't stalled out, it stuck, I would be more thankful or how about this one? I'd be a lot more thankful if my husband and my kids would appreciate all the things that I do around the house. If I just didn't have so many bills, if I had more money, then I would be thankful. If my circumstances would just change, I would be more thankful. But you know, sometimes it's not an if, it's a win. You know, I've been the pastor here for over 21 years, and, and we've kind of done life together, you and I, a lot of us have. And I've heard you say about these wins that have happened in your life, that you can just remember very specific things, and those wins have taken your gratitude away. And here's how I would explain it. Something has happened, and it was personal, and it was specific, and it changed you. You remember when you found out. You remember when you got that phone call, the one that you never thought you'd get. That one that ended up way worse than you ever thought. And boom, the job's gone. And just like that, the family walked out. And the business deal fell apart. The person that you used to call friend treated you worse than you've ever been treated by an enemy. And some of you, and I know because I've talked to you, you're like, I can circle the day. I can tell you what I was doing, where I was standing when it happened. And it stole my gratitude. When you found out about that accident that stole everything that was important to you. When you found out about that affair that you didn't see coming. When you found out about that diagnosis that left you counting the days either for yourself or for a loved one. Some of you, you literally remember the smell of the furniture 
and the carpet. When your parents called you in and they said, we're not doing this anymore. We're getting a divorce. Do you have a win? Anybody? A win in your life? It's hard to be thankful when. And when is often filled with bigger questions. And it makes you start wondering if you can trust anybody, including God. And you start asking things like, can anything change? Can people change? Can I change? Does God even care? And it's hard to be thankful when you have a when and when you have a if. So what I want to do this morning, I want us to look at a character. And there are some terrible things going on in his world. And I want us to just kind of look at him and, and, and look at his circumstances and then see how he responds to these terrible circumstances that are going on in his life. And then hopefully when we get done this morning, we'll have a different outlook because we're just going to be reminded of who God is and the power that he has in our lives. So here's where we're going to go. We're going to go to the book of Lamentations, probably your favorite book. And uh, we're just going to kind of hunker down there for a minute and look at some things. And I understand all seriousness, probably most of you are not very familiar with the book of Lamentations. So I just want to kind of set up some context for you. Poetically, this is a book of poems. It's five chapters. If you like minutia, if you're one of those people that are into the details, there's some interesting things about Lamentations. Four of the chapters, there's five total, four of them have 22 verses. Each verse starts with a different letter of the alphabet in consecutive order. It'd be kind of like in English if you were writing up some poetry and each stanza started with the letter A and the second one with letter B and the third one with letter C until you had 26 different stanzas or verses. Well, that's what the writer does here. And the reason for that is it makes it very easy to memorize. The one chapter that doesn't do that, the chapter that we're going to be in today is chapter 3. It has 66 verses. But it's still an acrostic of sorts because each stanza is made up of three verses. And so the beginning of each stanza still starts with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And there are 22 letters of the Hebrew al alphabet. 22 times 3, 66. I wasn't a math major, but I can do a little bit of math. And so it's kind of fascinating that he does it that way so that it can be remembered. Historically, and maybe you remember this from your studies of the Old Testament, Israel is kind of going through this cycle, and they do it over and over for hundreds of years. They're right with God, then they rebel against God, God gets their attention, oftentimes through a prophet, then they get back right with God, and then they're where they're supposed to be. And there's this just vicious cycle that goes through Israel over and over and over. They're right, then they sin, somebody calls them to repentance, they get right, and then the loop starts all over again. And that's kind of the thing that's happening in this passage. It's one of those times when God is judging Judah and Israel. So this is a poetic account. Most likely, I think, is written by Jeremiah, although it doesn't tell us specifically. But the people who are alive at this particular time in Israel's history, every one of them would circle that date and they would say, this was our worst moment. 
it doesn't get any worse than this. Any worse than this. Their when was 586 B.C. The great Babylonian empire known for their brutality laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. And for 18 months, they sieged the city. The author tells us in Lamentations chapter 2 about the chaos in the city. Verse 12, they say to their mothers, Where is bread and wine? As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms. People are starving. You get to chapter 4, and it tells us that mothers, listen to this, are eating their children. Cannibalism is said it. There's uncertainty. There is fear everywhere. And then finally, at the end of the 18 months, the Babylonians sweep into the city. They murder families that are still left alive. They destroy the temple. They burn the city to the ground. Lay waste to it. Anything of value, they cart off to Babylon. Anyone of value, they take and put them into slavery. And that's where we pick up the story. The nation of Judah no longer exists. So Jeremiah offers up in these five chapters these laments or these prayers or funeral dirges is what they really are. And the word lament means a genuine cry where you just want God to notice and you're trying to get God's attention. And there are real questions here about suffering and about sin and about tragedy. And here's what I'd like to ask you to do. Kind of put yourself in Jeremiah's shoes this morning. Just imagine that you are the survivor of a long military campaign and the social and spiritual fabric of your community has been torn and your city has been burned to the ground. You're walking through the city and you're just kicking the rubble around when you notice a half-melted mailbox, you pick it up. It's severely burned and you can't hardly see the nameplate, but you keep wiping the soot and the debris off. And finally, you're able to read the name. And tears come to your eyes because you realize it's the name of your best friend. Why do you cry out, clutching that mailbox? And no one answers in the stillness and destruction of the city. You continue your walk and you hear the whimper of a starving baby as the wind carries its voice whistling through the, the ruins. You look down a side street and you see a lady holding the lifeless body of her husband in her lap. And finally, you just drop to your knees, lonely and broken and without hope. And you just sob uncontrollably. That's just a semblance of what Jeremiah was experiencing as he writes to us in the book of Lamentations. 
So we're going to go to chapter 3. In chapters 1 and 2, he kind of sets things up for us by kind of portraying the nation of Israel as this, this woman who, if she'd have been faithful, things would have been different talking about the nation of Israel, if they would have repented. And then in chapter 3, he just kind of pulls us in a little bit more, and he talks about the afflicted man, and he's kind of referring to himself at the same time. He's referring to a nation. And so the first thing I want you to notice is, we are broken through circumstances. So he's pulling us in, and this afflicted man has lost everything. And he says, maybe The general idea is maybe God's just not for me. Maybe God has given up on me. And then he starts filling in the blanks. I could be thankful if, or I could be thankful when, or it's hard to be thankful when. And so beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He said, look, it's hard to be thankful when God has you walking in the darkness. It's hard to be thankful, he says, when God has turned his hand against you. Do you know this is the only place in Scripture where it says that God turns his hand against somebody? He continues in 4 and 5, He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. This is how he's feeling. And then he just keeps on going through these verses and it would take us a long time to read all of them. So just for time this morning. But he talks about how it feels like God has put chains on him. He talks about how it feels like God is just lying in wait for him like a bear. That God is like a lion that wants to mangle him. And then he gets down into verses 12 and 13 and he says this. God, you've made me a target. Can you imagine feeling like God had made you a target? Or maybe you do feel that way. He says, you've made me a target like you're aiming your arrows at me. He says in verses 12 and 13. You get the idea as you read this. This guy, Jeremiah, is at rock bottom. He thinks God has left him. Verse 17, I have been deprived of Peace, I have forgotten what prosperity is. But he doesn't stop there. He continues that thought. But there's a little phrase I want you to notice in verse 18. He begins verse 18 with the phrase, So I say. So suddenly it's like he's given us a picture of all these things. But then he's like giving us a glimpse into his mind as he kind of summarizes this a little bit. My splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord, it's all gone. So he's just saying it. He's saying what's there. My splendor is gone and all my hope. And then he goes on, I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall, and I remember them. And then he concludes this, this, this set of verses about circumstances and how they've broken him. My soul is downcast within me. When you read this, anyone that's ever had a win says, yeah, 
That's what I felt like. You ever felt like that? A win? Like God doesn't care? Like he could have done something, but he didn't. And you're struggling with how do I move forward past this? Well, Jeremiah does. And in verse 21, he makes this very intentional and dramatic turn. He's been talking about all of these circumstances. But then in verse 21, he says, Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. What is it he's calling to mind that is going to give him hope? Which brings me to my second and last point this morning. We remember his faithfulness. That's what he's going to talk about. Here's what he does. He's telling the people, he's telling the nation, the remnants, you've got to reach back. You've got to reach back to some things in the past. You've got to reach back into your heritage. And I want you to remember something. I know you don't understand what's going on. I know you don't understand what it's about. But I want you to just reach back and understand who God is for a second. And so this is what he says, and he's amplifying, yet I call this to mind. Here's what he says he's calling to mind in verse 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And like the song says, great is your faithfulness. So now that you're watching this morning, wherever you are, can we just call a timeout for just a minute? When you think about what is going through your mind right now and what you're facing, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? To use Jeremiah's words, what's your so I say? When you think about your circumstances, is it, you know what? God, thank you. I still have a lot to be thankful for. Or is your so I say, worry and bitterness and frustration and anger and disappointment and hurt? What's your so I say? You know, Paul tells us over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. He tells us to rejoice always, to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. Or literally, you could translate that better. This is God's heart for us in Christ Jesus. So Paul's telling us, hey, listen, the beginning of Thanksgiving is not lying about your circumstances. It's not pretending they're not there. It's not faking it. We all recognize that there are circumstances in our life that hurt but yet, God's heart is for you even in those moments. He's not asking us to pretend it's not there. And so the author of Lamentations, he just pours it out. And, he, and he's just telling everybody, let's get real. It's okay to ask the questions. But let's deal with it. And then he's saying, I need you, when you're dealing with it, then to reach back and remember some things. They didn't know why God was allowing this. You may not know whatever's going on in your life, why he's allowing it. They didn't know how long it was going to last. You may not know how long it's going to last. You don't have any idea what he's going to do. But he's saying, 
he calls to mind, we serve a God who is above the circumstances. Jeremiah is saying, listen, I need you to go back to the bedrock. The things that matter. I know you can't see what God's going to do. And you don't know how he's going to get you out of it. But you can't escape who he is. You know, it's interesting that in these kind of times that the the people of Israel would sing what they call the atada. And it's, it's, it's a kind of a weird phrase. It basically means praise and worship. I tell you what, why don't, we, why don't we do something? And I know you're at home, so you can say it to your kids or to your family, your spouse, or whoever you will. Let's say that word together, tada. It's not tada, that's not what we're saying, it's tada. So on the count of three, I know it's weird, I'll never ask you to do it again, but we're going to do it one time, okay? So on the count of three, one, two, three, tada. And so it's this song of praise that they would sing when things were really difficult. And it literally means hands extended. And David used it over and over. For instance, when he said, give thanks to the Lord for his love is good. His love endures forever. That was a tada. Again, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the city of David, it was a tada when he said, God, you're so good. Thank you for coming to be with us here. When the glory dropped out of Solomon's temple and and they didn't know what was going to happen and they were going to have to go to battle and they were going to praise God in advance, you know what they did? They sent the worship leaders out in front of the army. And I don't know how they got those guys wearing skinny jeans and wearing goatees to go out in front of everybody, but that's what they did. And they gave thanks even before they got the victory. And they did a tada. So over and over, he says, I don't know how you're going to get through it, but it's just this anthem to remember God's faithfulness and God's love and God's goodness in the middle of our worst circumstances. God, I thank you even if. And God, I thank you even when. This is so important. Our circumstances cannot become the bedrock for our thoughts. God's goodness and God's love and God's faithfulness need to be the bedrock of our thoughts. Our gratitude shouldn't be dependent on circumstances. Even if a single event is not erased from our calendar, even if there's not a single circumstance that changes, It's his love and it's his goodness and his faithfulness. And there's power when we acknowledge that. Even when people turn turn their back on you, God, I'm thankful that you don't turn your back on me. Even when sickness and death and weird diseases come, you're grateful that God is with you. Even when the sin and recklessness of others has hurt you, And that's happened to a lot of us. Jesus, thank you. Even if tomorrow doesn't change, even when anything but gratitude comes to your mind, we remember God's faithfulness. Even when you can circle days on your calendar, this is when that happened and it stole things from me. You remember God's love and grace and his compassion. When circumstances come, No matter what's going on, Jeremiah tells us, 
Remember God's love. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's goodness. That is bedrock. A couple quick homework assignments for you. I know a lot of you are fixing to sit down and eat lunch. Some of you may be doing brunch and watching it while you're eating. But here's what I want to ask you to do. As a family, as a couple, whatever it is, maybe you're with some friends, I want to ask you today, just talk about what are some things that we have to be thankful for. Yeah, the world's kind of crazy right now. But what are some things that you have to be thankful for? And then the second thing is this, and we're going to be sending an announcement about this later on today too. But I want to encourage you, at 7 o'clock every night, pray for our country. We're going to be doing that church-wide. There's other churches that are going to be doing this. And the reason 7 o'clock, the national news goes off at 6.30. And that will be a great reminder that when that news goes off, and maybe some of you quit watching the news because it's so depressing. Take your phone. Set your alarm for 7 o'clock. There's power in prayer. So everybody in our church, at 7 o'clock, for, to whenever this ends, every evening at 7 o'clock, we're going to ask you to pray. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we come to you today. and Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, circumstances and events that took place thousands and thousands of years ago are still so relevant to the world that we live in. Thank you for a word that's relevant to us. And Father, I just pray today. I know there are people that are discouraged and there are people that are frustrated and there are people that are fearful and anxious. Father, just help us to to grasp that concept of your faithfulness. Help us to lean on that. Help that to be the, the bedrock. Father, I do want to pray for our country. I pray for our leaders and the decisions they have to make. Father, we ask that this virus go away. We pray for our health care workers that are on the front lines and our first responders. And Father, just be with them and keep them healthy. Father, we pray for those that, have already been, that are already sick. Father, we pray that you make them well. Father, I pray for all the rest of us that we take the kind of precautions that we can take not to infect other people. But Father, most of all, just thank you for loving us today. We praise you for your goodness and your love, your strength, your faithfulness. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.